Hi, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. Welcome to season three, episode 18. Um, moving on to part two of the beginning of clock and watchmaking. Um, I'm going to kind of focus now um, on Tompion, Thomas Tompion, as we said, the uh, sometimes he's coined the father of English timekeeping. But let's put this in perspective. I mean, he's a He's an individual craftsman artisan who started his own gig, essentially. Um, once he was in motion, as in most clockmakers, great furniture makers of England and France, and and not so much in the Americas, we're not even going to delve into that today, but this is just the, the, continent, the continental and the English clock watchmakers, furniture makers. Once they were in motion, like Chippendale and Andre Charles Boulle in, in, in Paris, once they were in motion, they set up their shops. They weren't doing a lot of the work. They were front men. These were big egomaniacs. These were people that wanted to be seen. They wanted to hobnob. They wanted to be known in social circles. So in the beginning, maybe they had their roots, rudimentary roots, good, solid craftsmanship. But they saw an opening. And they were going through the line in a, in a cliche of a football. But, um, and that's not to take anything from that. Back then, to set a business up like that and a craft and a business combination to, to keep it moving stalworth, straightforward, uh, was not an easy thing. I mean, much more difficult than today, I'm sure. So, uh, but <clears throat> just keep in mind, everybody thinks that, um, you know, these people made all their own, own clocks and watches and Chippendale made his own furniture. I mean, yes, we we have a few examples remaining that, that came from Chippendale's own shop, which is absolutely astonishing stuff. But did he really do it? Chances are no, no, and no. But uh, it's still good to figure out how these individuals got their start. So uh, so let's, uh, you know, let's get into it a little bit here. So uh, Thomas Tompion, so, who was described as as we previously said, the father of English clockmaking, was the elder son of Thomas Tompion, a blacksmith, and of his wife, Margaret. His birthplace was Ickfield Green, a hamlet in the parish of North Hill, Bedfordshire, on the 25th of July of 1639. He was baptized in North Hill Church 32 years later on the 4th of September, 1671. He was admitted into the clockmaker's company of the City of London as a brother and paid a fee of 30 shillings. And you could work for the aristocracy, the king and his court. Um, You could come and become a guild member by buying your way into that membership. You could be working for someone and be designated to be to be put into the guild and, and upon your seven year apprenticeship as a clockmaker, you would be a, a, a full you would have full membership. So there are various ways of getting into the guild, but it was to everyone's advantage who was in the guild to do this. So these two dates mark only a void because we know virtually no more of Tompion's early life and upbringing than we know of that of Shakespeare's. It's a big mystery. Or, for that matter, Thomas Chippendale, born in Utley in England, 
don't know anything about how he got from a, a, a child, his father was a joiner, to this person on Fleet Street in London, in his in his studio. How did he get there? It, it's 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 mind boggling. And Andre Charles Bull, you know, his contemporary in Paris. I mean, so um, I don't know. You don't know what to say, but it 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 is what it is, and and we can take these men that their names have been put on to such greatness of of art and craft and. And, and that's what we have to reach and hold on to. And, and we have them to use as a comparison of um, these other types of objects around the world. So, but for so long, research has, and, and, and so far, failed to reveal to whom and where he was even apprenticed. And where he lived and worked after he had served his terms of apprenticeship. So the name Tompion is rare. You know, it's a, it's a name that comes up, and Chippendale is a little more common, for instance, but it has no connection with the variants of Tom, Tom-son, Tomp-son, Tomkins, Tomkin. So all these words that researchers have looked up, names, trying to find information, maybe somebody <clears throat> very common, you know, uh, F's and V's and various letters to get confused in the beginning because when America, particularly here in America in the colonies when, when, when people came from abroad they said their name they're telling it to colonists that can't read or write and, and, and you know the name got miscongrued and um, spelled backward eight times so um, you know so maybe perhaps that's why we don't know where he came from and where he did his apprenticeship and where he lived so anyway researchers have looked up variations on the name of uh, Tompion so um, you know maybe maybe he, just being facetious maybe he changed his name like Madonna he just called himself Madonna you know so uh, but anyway the dictionary tells us that it is derived from the French word tampon what does the word tampon mean a stopper or a plug um, the English version of which is either Tompion or Tampion. So the Navy is familiar with the word spelt Tompion or Tampion or tamp- Tampon as meaning a plug which is placed into the mouth of a gun to keep out the wet. Hence, the ironic naval saying, you only fire r- one round with the Tompion end. It is likely... Therefore, the Thomas Tompion ancestors were of some type of French origin. We can assume that. They had at one time made or sold bongs for barrels. How about that? Tampons, plugging up holes, bongs for barrels, gun plugs, and similar other articles that all required plugging up a leaking hole. So... And and in the 16th century, or even the early 17th century, come as Protestant immigrants to England. The first Tompion served in Bedfordshire is one James Tompion, who was married in 1625 at South Hill, a neighboring, neighboring parish to North Hill. So we definitely know that Tompion's grandfather was Robert Tompion, a blacksmith, for his will was proved on the 4th of August, 1635, and from him we can trace the descent of the clockmaker. So, the son Thomas, who was 
left all the tools of his father's shop, was the father of Thomas Tompion, the clockmaker. On the 29th of August, 1665, this will was proved. So, Thomas Tompion Sr. carried out all the manner of blacksmith's work during his long career. He shoed horses, he mended the clappers of the church bells, made hinges and bolts for doors, and um, beside him stood two young sons. One, he initiated into the mysteries of the blacksmith's craft, the mysteries. The future clockmaker was taught as the quotation at the head of the chapter informs us how to make hobnails and how to become, like his father, a worker of iron. When you, when you next set your watch, wrote the poet Matthew Pryor, remember that Tompion was a farrier. He began his great knowledge in the equation of time by regulating the wheels of a common jack to roast meat. This was his first indenture, his first project to regulate the time of the wheels of a common jack to roast meat in a large fireplace. So, so to whom was Thomas Tompion apprenticed? It's a very vexing question. Miss uh, Ethel Simcoe, who's tried to reconstruct the family tree from the North Hill Registers, and to draw a picture of the clockmaker's early life, repeats the unsubstantiated assertion that he was apprenticed to a London clockmaker in 1664. It is unlikely that he was indentured to his father, for that was not the custom. There was no trace of Tolpian's name in the apprenticeship list in the blacksmith's armorers, founders, or even clockmaker's company. Neither is his name found in the registers of indentures of apprenticeships and apprentices for the town of Bedford, where at that time John Bunyan was languishing in Gow. In the, in the court minute book of the clockmaker's company, it is recorded that Tompion was admitted as a brother on the 4th of September, as we earlier said, 1671 and paid a fee of 30 shillings. He was described as a great clockmaker, which really all it meant that at that time of his admission, he was a master blacksmith slash clockmaker, specializing in the making of large turret or church and iron-type clocks. Nothing of precision, but still considered a great clockmaker. Perhaps he was working on great-sized objects these type of clocks. So two and a half years later, at a court held on the 6th of April in 1674, he was admitted a free clockmaker upon redemption and paid a fee of 10 shillings. He therefore became free of the clockmaker's company, not in the usual way by serving a term of apprenticeship, but by purchase, a buyout for redemption. He didn't put his time in, actually. And here is known as the greatest clockmaker of all time, the father of clockmaking, watchmaking. And he bought his way out of the clockmaker's company. He didn't serve his apprenticeship. I guess nothing wrong with that. So there is one other fact concerning Tompion's early life that which 
is one that one is tempted to speculate on. A bell was cast for the north for the church of St. Lawrence at Willington, a village not too far from North Hill, with the inscription Thomas Tompion Fet, which means Thomas Tompion in Latin made sixteen sixty one. But if Tompion made this bell, this means that only that he could cast but not only that, but he could cast bells as well as make clocks and, and work on tower clocks. So, although bell casting was really a specialist work, the description of a craftsman as clockmaker and bell founder, although is not uncommon. But did Thomas Tompion live in or near Willington after he had left Ickfield Green? Unfortunately, we just don't know. Like other apprentices, Tompion probably finished his term when he was 21. For the next 11 years, he worked in a provincial town. And it was during this period, or during this time, that the change from blacksmith to blacksmith clockmaker of church or turret clocks must have taken place. Before Tompion could start working in London as a watch and clockmaker, he had to be a member of the clockmaker's company. And presumably, his joining of the company in 1671 coincided with the beginning of his permanent residence in the capital. It is not, however, until around 1674, the year he became free of the clockmaker's company, that there's actual evidence that he was living in the Wooder Lane in Fleet Street. So that's where we uh, we find him. Um, so a couple years passed, and he actually met up with a, a, a English mathematician, one of the great minds of England in the early or late 17th century and early 18th century. Uh, his name was Robert Hooke, and this is how they met. Hooke had demonstrated before the members of the Royal Society the principles of a quadrant which he, invent, he had invented, a new kind of astronomical instrument of his own invention for the taking of height, angles, and distances of celestial bodies by one observation more exactly than ever had been done. So on this 22nd of January of 1673, the society asked him to employ a craftsman to make such a quadrant at a cost of not more than 10 pounds for which they would pay. Hook, Robert Hook seems to have been slow in getting on with the commission. Possibly it was because he was not satisfied with the abilities of Thomas Shortgrave, the instrument maker employed by the society, and he'd not been able to find, until he fortunately met Tompion, another craftsman uh, capable of making such a quadrant. Whether the reason, over two months elapsed before he jotted down his diary, on the 5th of April, 1674, in his crabbed up but sharp handwriting, began the description of a quadrant. So he went on to commission um, Tompion to make the quadrant. Um, so he met him on Water Lane, and at this meeting the two men, seems, became friendly for the first time. Hook discovered that this clockmaker was no ordinary craftsman, and that, in fact, he had a speculative mind like himself. And we can well imagine that Hook was kindled by the younger man's keenness and appreciation of his genius. The scientist relaxed, then he grew communicative, 
and began to unfold some of his ideas. Much discourse with him about watches and told him the way of making an engine for finishing wheels and the way of how to make a dividing plate, in fact, about the form of an arch and uh, about another way of teeth work, about pocket watches and many other things. So later during the day, Hook sent <coughs> for quadrant from uh, sent for the quadrant from Tompion, uh, and made a note of his first payment, and I I was able to send a bit a bit of cash to him. On, and on the fifteenth of May, Hook proudly showed his quadrant to Sir Jonas Moore, the mathematician, who kept the sea out of Norfolk by draining the level of fens. So it seems that Hook had sent for the unfinished instrument to make trial of it. The next day he was at Tompion's in Water Lane. The first time he wrote in his, his first time he wrote Tompion's name correctly in his diary, it's actually he has seven different spellings. Hook has seven different spellings in his diary of Thomas Tompion's name. Isn't that interesting? And he wondered why someone could get confused with someone else and the whereabouts they've been in a lifetime. And so this was in order to direct him about the index and screw of the quadrant. On this occasion, they disclosed of founding, shrinking, and swelling of the metal, bells and screws, etc. So they were talking about, in this meeting, the expansion contraction due to the heating um, up of the sun. Um, but 12 days go by before Hook and Tompion um, paid another visit to one another. Meanwhile, the craftsman had been busy with the quadrant. He had cast it and soured brass rimmed it. And Hook was pleased with the result, highly pleased. With his hair flooding over his face and bent low, he darted off to the Royal Society, whose headquarters were still at Andrel House. And he met John Flamestead, who the following year was to take up his appointment as the first astronomer royale and led him to Wooder Lane. I showed Flamstein my quadrant, wrote Hook. It must have been one of the great greatest interests to Flamstein. In 1661, he had written a paper on the use and construction of such an instrument, and it finally came to life before his eyes. It was Thompson's first meeting with the younger astronomer. Flamstein was then 28 years old. Owing to an illness which he had contracted when a boy, he was as crooked in appearance as Hook, and as far as one could judge from an account written on a year date, as ugly and as irritable as him also. Tompion, who had only made the quadrant, not designed it, listened carefully to Flamsteed's criticism and saw his eminent friend, Dr. Hook, grow annoyed. We can only try to guess what these two scientists said to and thought about each other, but Hook, when he was back at Gresham College Rooms, after leaving the quadrant with Tompion for further adjustments, concluded his part of this matter and summed up his view of Flamstein's character with the sentiment he is a conceited coxcomb, as he puts it. So having a conceited one, having a, quite the, the large uh, crown or head above him. So, um, uh, so in 1674... Um, there was a, it was a full and fortunate year for Tompion after the making of the quadrant, the turning point from obscurity to fame in his career. Though Hook, he meant 
the distinguishing scientist, or through Hook, he meant the distinguishing scientist of the day, probably about five of them. The king, and is also his nobility. So what a great find for Tompion, I mean, to, to, to be befriended by this man. I mean, not necessarily befriended. I mean, this man knew that Tompion had a high skill level, but um, forget the, uh, you know, the, the 10 pounds that Tompion made on the quadrant. He made, he made hundreds, thousands of pounds, literally, um, of future payback from the people he met uh, in doing this project. And, and, and I think that's the way it goes with many arts and crafts people, and, and at least it's, it's been with, with me and, you know, living in Paris and Venice and, and throughout England, um, the people that I met. And sometimes it doesn't come back as just monetary, and we don't want it to. If we're true, if we're true artists and craftsmen, we're, we're not looking for money. We're looking to perfecting our craft. Um, with me, it's trying to save objects, trying to have the best possible information in the world of saving this particular object. And maybe that doesn't exist. Maybe there's, there's um, a myriad of types of information coming from multiple angles that I'm going to funnel into one, um, one result to, to save the objects that I'm saving, whether it's horological, um, the clock's mechanisms, the cases, the dials, or, or furniture, or even architecture today. So, um, but in the 17th century, men's minds were astir with the significance of science. So we know it's the age of enlightenment, you know, beginning of the age of enlightenment. Um, that was in the late 17th century. It was now generally accepted that by observation and experiment, the laws of nature could be unfolded. And the mathematicians and experimental philosophers of London engaged upon differentiating the branches of science. Welcome to their small community. The instrument, make, the instrument maker genius of Wooder Lane was born, Thomas Tompion, the beginning of great, one of the greatest clockmakers ever to be on a, uh, on a clock dial, or watch dial for that matter. And and you know, that kind of finishes up here. But we we must realize that you know we we need to look at output. We we look at some clockmakers here in the colonies and. You know, you can look at some with literally a lifetime of making, say, a tall case clock mechanism and a, uh, a bell strike, uh, time and strike eight day. Some have only done 24 to 36 in a, in a 30 year period in a lifetime. That's all they can make. They were making clocks the hard way. They were casting the gears. I mean, I would have no idea how they could even do this. Um, they would probably, just my interpretation would have to sit out and say, okay, this year I'm going to. I'm going to cast five gears in, in the five gears in the going train, and that's all I'm going to do. Next year, I'll put five, I'll cast and I'll create the molds for five gears in the striking train, and then the third year, I'll go uh, get the plates and I'll I'll do my layouts uh, for for my drilling, and and that's the only way I can imagine it because otherwise, I mean, you have to do some kind of multiplization of of techniques and procedures to get anywhere. So just look at that. I mean, that's a 30-year, that's a lifetime for a clockmaker in some of the colonies. But, um, you know, Tompion, you see his watches that are, that are all numbered. They get up into the 6,000s. Can you imagine how many people, how many great watchmakers he had working for him under his own employ or in their own studios elsewhere? It's mind-boggling. And that's just watches. Clocks were huge, huge. And then he had the clock cases, and, and, and obviously they didn't make the cases in-house, but 
he had to commandeer and, and control the quality of, of the, even the cases that his watches were watches and clocks were going into. So, I mean, this was a huge, a massive operation. So, so if everyone enjoyed it, don't forget you can find us out there on Instagram um, and uh, the historic preservationist, all lowercase and. And uh, when you go on that one-minute Instagram, it leads you to IGTV, 15-minute videos. You can find me on site at clients, museums, horologically speaking, um, doing period restoration, going to auction houses, doing architectural restoration, um, doing appraisals. It goes on and on. Everything about history and how to save history. That's who we are here, the historic preservationists. So you find us on IGTV, and you can also go to our YouTube channel, and uh, please don't forget to hit to uh, the like button and the subscribe button there so it helps us out in the future and it helps us helps me to know what direction we want to go to do we want to go back for many many episodes into furniture into clocks uh, um, or into architecture so uh, all good information so greg perry the historic preservationist signing off uh, thanks everyone for listening <laughs>